0: If you have your copy of God's Holy Word, I encourage you to take it up and turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 5. Our text this morning is verses 13 through 15, and we'll read those now. Hear now the word of the Lord from Galatians 5, beginning at verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Our gracious Father in heaven, With grateful hearts, we come again to your word. We are are thankful for the saints who have gone before us and who have persevered in the faith and whose shoulders we stand upon. We owe a debt of gratitude to the faithful fathers who have handed down the faith once delivered to their children, and we owe an eternal debt to you, for giving your son who lived, died, and was raised to redeem a people for your name to purchase a bride unto himself, and to deliver in the end the glorious kingdom to you when he put an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy being death itself. O Lord, we give you thanks for your Holy Spirit who dwells within us and comforts us and works sanctification in us. For we are truly a needy people. Therefore, I pray for your spirit to attend the preaching of your word. Give the preacher your words. Pour out your strength in his weakness that your people might be fed, encouraged and equipped for every good work and for a joyful life in Christ. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) So I want to step out of the pulpit just for a minute and and take this opportunity to give thanks. We're so thankful to have the visitors with us this morning. It's a a great joy. I do warn you, you're coming in on part two of a message. So if there's any lack of orientation, you can go back to the end of May on the website and catch the first part of this message. But I want to thank the Lord this morning. Um, A strange thing happened on the way to dinner last night. (laughs) You may notice that I sound a little bit different, those that are familiar. And as I was getting prepared for dinner, I looked on the table and there's a bowl of cherries. And I asked Mary Susan, are those cherries pitted? And she said, yes, they're pitted. So I grabbed a cherry and then I grabbed a couple of more and within moments I started sneezing and coughing and my mouth was beginning to swell. And by the time I was sitting at the dinner table, there was absolutely no voice And so I texted Marion, and I kind of put him on alert. But thanks be to God, I do have somewhat of a voice this morning. Amen. (laughs) So, just a brief review from the message last week to sort of (coughs) orient us here in this short passage. As we considered last time, we noted that in this text before us, there is an apostolic warning. There is an exhortation in this passage. We're called to liberty, but warned not to use that liberty as an occasion for the flesh. There's an exhortation to love. And as we see these warnings, we consider the question, how is this warning? How are these warnings, especially in verse 15, applicable to us? And as I was doing study for this message, I ran across Thomas Brooks' precious remedies against Satan's devices. I can recommend it. Had a great conversation with, I believe, Trey Schultz, who had also read this. But as I read through Brooks's commentary on this, he, he has a list of Satan's devices for various issues, and then he provides remedies to the devices of Satan. And so, in verse 15, Thomas Brooks notes the devices that Satan uses to accomplish the end of biting and devouring one another. And he puts it this way, Satan uses these devices by working them first to be strange, and then to divide, and then to be bitter and jealous, and then to bite and devour one another. And so as I was looking at this, I, I imagined a road. And that was the metaphor we used to look at this passage. We don't go from being a happy, healthy, joy-filled, loving church all the way to a church that is biting and devouring one another. No, there is a journey that we take along the way. And if I use Brooks' outline here, we see four signposts on this road that goes from a healthy, happy church filled with love to a church that bites and devours one another. And so we we looked at these as four signposts, the first of which is to become strange, using Thomas Brooks' words. That is cool and cold toward one another. And we declared that this is the best signpost to turn around and get off this road to cannibalism to biting and devouring one another. Signpost number two is we begin to divide. If we ignore the first sign, we begin to divide. Divisions appear within the body. We had the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for you were still carnal. When we divide, we are expressing carnality. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal in behaving like mere men? So there's carnality expressing itself when we go through this strange and cool phase all the way up to the divisions that begin to form within the body. But if we proceed down this road to cannibalism, we reach signpost number three. We become bitter and jealous toward one another. Envy is present in our midst. And so we were... Exhorted to heed this exhortation from Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. Bitterness grieves the Holy Spirit. But if we remain stubborn, and we continue down this path, (coughs) we reach signpost number four. This is the end of the journey. We are biting and devouring one another and consumed of one another. This is where Satan's victory flag is waving. This is the ugly and sad conclusion of too many churches. And so we are called to take heed to these warning signs and turn around. And so that is the illustration this road to cannibalism. But this morning, we will leave those particular exhortations, those signposts, and we're going to turn to the 12 remedies that Thomas Brooks has offered for us to consider. Remedies that will allow us to exit the road to cannibalism and live holy lives in the context of the church the way the Lord would be most pleased with. So, If you're taking notes and you like your 12-point sermons, here we go. Remedy number one, to dwell more upon one another's graces than upon one another's weaknesses and infirmities. Let me say that again. Remedy number one is to dwell more upon one another's graces than upon one another's weaknesses and infirmities. Perhaps this sounds intuitive. But how true, how great a remedy this is. How often, this is a question for you to ask yourself, how (coughs) often do we first and primarily focus upon the problems we see in one another? Do you have a critical spirit, a judging spirit, a complaining spirit? If so, then I think we ought to turn to Philippians 4.8. It applies to all of the Christian life, but I think it's useful in this setting. Whatsoever things are true, you know the passage. Honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. When you look at your brother and sister, think of these things in and of your brother and sister. Exercise this with your spouse and with your children. Put away the critical spirit. Paul goes on to say in that, later in that chapter, do these things and God and the God of peace shall be with you. Is it not sweeter? Is it not more comfortable and more delightful? More enjoyable to consider the good graces in one another rather than our infirmities? ask ourselves, what kind of heart is drawn to focus on the weaknesses in our brothers and sisters? Is it not a dark heart? Is not grace, to use Brooks' words, is not grace the choicest flower in the Christian garden, the richest jewel in his crown? Why? Why, if there is this beautiful garden filled with choice flowers, would we rummage through the compost pile? We should train our eye to delight in the graces we see in one another. Is this not the way of our Lord in Christ? Remedy number two. To solemnly consider that love and union makes most for your own safety and security. Consider that love and union makes most for your own safety and security. God has made us a people. Not an atomistic aggregation of independent individuals. This is something that may rub against our rugged American individualism. Our individualist spirits rebel against such information. We tend to want to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps, do we not? But what does Scripture say? Two are better than one. If one falls, another is there to pick up his friend. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. This is God's design for God's people. The church is made up of many members with differing gifts. And as we live together, as we labor together, as we exercise ourselves in life together, in love, in Christ, we are stronger. And there is safety There is safety in a multitude of counselors when we're unified in God's Word. A matter is established in the testimony of two or three witnesses. We are led down the path of truth in the context of the church here. And so as I live my life in front of you, in the context of this church community, as I seek to be transparent, you all see my life. You keep me on the path to righteousness and You are there to pick me up when I stumble, when I fall, to point me back to the good way. But, it's, but not only that sort of safety, there, additionally, there is joy that is multiplied as we rightly celebrate God's blessings together before His face. How encouraging is it is, joy is multiplied Not just a bunch of individual joys, but it just swells to overflowing when we do this before the face of God. And then there's the grief and the sorrow and the mourning that comes to us from time to time. And there my brothers and sisters are. And we are soothed. We are comforted. Their presence is a balm to me in those particular times. In this life together, we find that we are more resilient to the fiery darts of Satan. Our weaknesses are fortified by our brother's strengths. The loving exhortations we receive from one another sharpen us. These benefits are only available and effective as we are in unity with one another. As we break down the walls of coolness and division that may rise. This is where we find these great blessings. And so we turn to remedy number three. To dwell upon those commands of God which require, require you to love one another. We read that passage earlier from 1 John chapter 4. Were you hearing love, 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 love? I don't think we can speak too much of love, or encouraged too much love. When we begin to see the first glimmer of a signpost on the road down there, on this road to cannibalism, we should quickly bear these verses in our hearts and minds. And so I'm going to read some passages. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, John 15, 12. O, oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Romans 13.8 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We read that from 1 John chapter 4. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. First Peter 1 Peter 1.22 Finally, all of you be of one mind. Having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. First Peter 3.8 Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. This love, exercising ourselves in this love, this is how we exit the road to cannibalism. This is how we avoid the road to cannibalism. This is what we're called to. This is what should float to the top of our minds as we dwell together. This love should overwhelm and drown out any strangeness in our relationships, steer us away from divisions, and root out any bitterness. Remedy number four. To dwell more upon these choice and sweet things wherein you agree, than upon those things wherein you differ. We're people. We're different. But we have this core of faith in Christ. We have the Word of God. Why then do we occasionally fall into arguing and focusing on our disagreements than in those beautiful things where we agree. Are there sinful arguments and disagreements among you? Here's the remedy. First of all, we (coughs) need to confess some of us have a contentious spirit. If I say yes, and you instinctively say no, you may have a contentious spirit. Or if you're struggling with that illustration, perhaps you can think of little children arguing did too did not did too did not there is there's something in these fallen bodies that causes us to want to draw lines and argue with our brother or sister in this we are guided not by truth or charity but by our subjective hearts and pride so when you consider your brother or sister do you rejoice in their differing gifts Or do you compare and critique? And then, you know, don't want to go too far down this path, but there is the whole world of the internet. Are you involved deeply in any of these internet groups that seem to promote arguments among Christians? I think I could name a few that I know a few of you are in, and it seems like there is a nonstop debate over baptism the proper recipients, the modes, you name it. Some of us love to get into these theological arguments, and we love too much there are opportunities for disputations. We love to fight and win arguments. So if you must engage, move the discussion, here's the exhortation, from the su- subjective opinions that you bear to the truth of God's Word. Consider the testimony of your words, your countenance when there is a, a genuine disagreement, the tone of your voice, the tone of your typed words. There is a tone associated with this. those. Mm. And as you're engaging in these disputations, seek opportunity to edify and to build up and encourage rather than to win the argument Acknowledge and dwell on those areas of agreement. Acknowledge the goodness of God in all things, and you will do well. And this will help you as we seek to avoid the road to cannibalism. Remedy number five. Solemnly consider that God delights to be styled the God of peace, Christ to be styled the Prince of Peace and the King of Peace, and the Spirit as a spirit. Peace. So, is there a contrary spirit in your Christian walk? Are you a difficult person to live with, to, to work for, to talk to? Does it seem like too many conversations with your spouse turn to argument? Remember, Christ's name shall be called wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Consider Paul's benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians where he writes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. This is that sweet, comfortable, profitable blessing that we desire and are called to. This is love in action. This is the good way. Is there a roaring spirit in your speech or in your thoughts and in your mind? Is the atmosphere of your home filled with the sound and the smoke of war? Then repent and heed the call to peace. Know that the flesh And the old man wants to escalate the argument, to win the argument, to have the last word, labor to put off the old man, de-escalate, and fill your home with the sweet aroma of peace. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men, yield to the calling of the God of peace, and exit the road to cannibalism. This is our calling. Remedy number six. To make more care and conscience of keeping your peace with God. Not just peace with our fellow man and our brother, but keeping up our peace with God. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him, we read in Proverbs 16.7. We are to live in the constant awareness of God's presence. And this is difficult for us to do. We feel it. And it's uncomfortable. And so we try to flee. Speaking of the wicked man, the psalmist in Psalm 10 writes, He has said in his heart, God is forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Whether we want to outwardly say that or not, there is something in us that tends to want to do that. We know our sin We haven't confessed it to our brother. We haven't confessed it before God. And so we want to to fool ourselves into thinking God isn't aware of this. But the profound truth of God's omnipresence and omniscience is something we have to come to terms with. We therefore must needs exercise ourselves in the means of grace. Why is that? It is difficult to deny... The God who is there when we are in constant conversation with Him. If you're constantly in prayer, you're not going to deny that God is there and you will confess your sins. Much time in the Word equates to listening to God inviting God to speak to your spirit. Know that where we are unrepentant in our sins, there is no peace with God. We cannot hide our sin from God's. There is no false or pretense peace with our God. Therefore, we must repent, believe the Gospel, and be at peace with God. Remedy number seven to dwell much upon that near relation and union that is between you. I think maybe an illustration would be helpful. As we read from Genesis 13 earlier, this was the motivation that we saw in Abraham. So Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. We could take those words to our brethren and say, Let there be no strife. Between you and me, for we are brethren. Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We do well to remember who we are in Christ. We do well to look out there and see each other as brothers and sisters. We are all brothers and sisters. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. There's a bond of fellowship and peace and unity and purpose of calling in our shared identity in Christ. We are one new race. We are all called and needed in this body. There's a great unity and there is great diversity. And it is beautiful, and God keeps adding to our numbers and bringing in new gifts, and we are to celebrate this. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God has composed the body. Don't skip that phrase. God has composed the body. Having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should all have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. This is a passage we would do well to dwell on often. Do you feel like you don't belong here at Heritage? Heritage? Take up 1 Corinthians 12 and read beginning at chapter 20. Do you feel underappreciated as you seek to serve in this body? Take up this passage and meditate. Are you struggling with how to fit in? Read this passage and believe it. And I believe God will bless this. Let us not use our liberty in Christ for an occasion to the flesh, but by love, serve one another. The next time you are feeling out of sorts with this body, pick up a broom or some trash when we are gathered. Write an encouraging note to someone in the church. You don't know where you fit. You don't feel like you belong. You're struggling to feel loved. Write a note of encouragement to someone in this body. How about stop by and visit someone you haven't visited before at their house? It's one of the great blessings we enjoy here. We are close to one another. We know where we live. Pop by and say hi, and if they're busy, that's okay. That's okay. Slow down as you approach someone on the church road. Roll down your window and exchange a friendly word. Amen, Wayne? Roll down the window and talk to people. This is part of loving serving one another. We have examples all around us of how to do this. Lift up your eyes and look and model the good you you see. Remedy number eight. To dwell upon the miseries of discord. How is this a, a remedy? To dwell upon the miseries of discord. Discord. Dissension. Disunity. Anger. Wrath grudges, strife, sullen countenances, envy, unthankful hearts. These are tools in Satan's toolbox. But in Ephesians 4 warns us, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Give no place to the devil. When you see these tools of Satan in your life, You are giving place to the devil. Don't do that. These tools bring misery to our lives. They deaden our souls and they are rottenness to our bones. Perhaps in thinking too little of these miseries, we too easily give them a place in our lives. We don't recognize them when they are there. If a brother comes up to you and says, Keith, (laughs) you're not smiling. I need to hear that. I need to know that my countenance has given place that it shouldn't have. We need to know them and put them off. They are the painful stones on the road to cannibalism. Those stones that get in your shoe and cause pain, and so we need to stop and put them off, and we need to know that we have felt their miseries and be prompted to know that we are heading in the wrong way even in these little things in our lives. Remedy number nine. To seriously consider that it is no disparagement to you to be first in seeking peace and reconcilement, but rather an honor to you that you have begun to seek peace. Be the first one To seek peace, in other words. This is an honor. It's not any sort of disparagement. Consider Genesis 13 again. Remember that Abraham was older and more honorable than Lot, and yet it is Abraham that first sought peace. And God blessed Abraham in this. And the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which you see I give you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that a man could number the dust of the earth then your descendants, descendants could also be numbered. God blessed Abraham's humility in, in seeking to make peace with Lot. And this is contrary to our natural mind, our natural way of thinking, is it? is it not? We think that the offender in a situation, for example, is duty-bound to make the first step. What if he doesn't? We think we will appear weak if we're the first one to seek peace in a situation. We think that we're failing to lead as we ought to lead. But in Christ. We are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Consider Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who took the initiative? God takes the initiative, not us. And this is our pattern to follow. Brothers and sisters, be first to seek peace. Be eager to seek peace and to reconcile with one another. Remedy number 10. For saints to join together and walk together in the ways of grace and holiness so far as they agree, making the Word of God their only touchstone and judge of their actions. This is what we ought to be about. Walking together in the ways of grace and holiness as far as we agree, making the Word of God our touchstone and judge of our actions. Consider your conversations with your brothers and sisters. Are they worldly conversations? Or are they rooted in the Word of God? Philippians 3, beginning at verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself too apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, and let us be of the same mind. What do we see here? We see that love keeps no record of wrongs, does it not? We forget those things which are behind. We forgive and forget. Rightly. We don't hold a grudge. No more. But if only the situation had been this way. Forgiven sins are forgiven sins. They are behind us. We move forward looking ahead toward the goal and the prize. We have agreed in word. We are to walk in unity being of the same mind. The only way the people of God can truly agree and be unified is as they agree in the perfect revelation of God through His Word. The Bereans. Consider the Bereans. They were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Apart from the Scriptures, I want you to hear this, apart from the Scriptures, we all, all we have is subjective an ever-changing, politically motivated, emotionally evaluated collection of human, that is, fallen wisdom. Does that make sense? Apart from the Scriptures, the rock, the delivered revelation from our perfect God, the perfect revelation from our perfect God, apart from that, we quickly enter into this subject subjective realm where truth changes we know it doesn't but it it, you you hear the conversations out there things are motivated politically (coughs) they're emotionally evaluated rather than evaluated against the truth of God and so it's just a collection of a temporary mass of human wisdom and that leads to disunity Christ has spoken his word the word given him by the father and a word by which we will be judged this is weighty stuff. It has been said when an ignorant man cried out in a contest with a holy man, Hear me, hear me. The holy man answered, Neither hear me, nor I you, but let us both hear the apostle. There's a word picture for you. There's a... Is there a dispute? You're trying to be heard, or he's trying to be heard. No, let's don't listen to either one of wisdom from either one of us. Let's turn and let us hear the apostles speak the truth to both of us. The exhortation here is for us to grow up and learn to settle any disputes that arise by the word of God. This is what we've been hearing in the Wednesday night Bible study from Pastor Lovett. This is a growth opportunity for our congregation and for all of us individually. This is how we discern the truth and know what is good and what is honorable. Remedy number 11. We're getting close here. To be much in self-judging. This is a remedy. To be much in self-judging. Consider Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, you will be me- it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Self-judgment is indeed commended in the Scriptures. Look first before you engage your brother in a matter for the sin in your life, especially before pointing out the sin in your brother's life. Once you have done this, and only then you can see clearly. But even as we enter into this self-reflection, this self-inspection, it is not a call to morbid introspection. Yes, we are all sinners that have fallen short of God's glory. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What Christ has forgiven, we are to forgive. We are to be confident in this. We are to live lives of repentance and forgiveness. And we are not to dwell on sins that have been forgiven. 1 John three twenty one, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Neither should anything condemn us if we are in right relationship before God. Yet how do we begin to self-judge? James 4, 7-10, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. When you're in the process of this self-evaluation and you find sin, you need to repent. Repent and mourn, and let that grief have its work in your life, and purify your hands and your hearts, and humble yourselves before your Lord. He will lift you up. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Scripture heeds us. Do, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Disqualified. As Brooks observes, there are no souls in the world who are so fearful to judge others as those who do most judge themselves, nor so careful to make a righteous judgment of men or things as those who are most careful to judge themselves. The more we judge ourselves, the less we judge others. The more we judge ourselves, the more rightly we can judge others. There are none in the world who tremble to think evil of others, to speak evil of others, or to do evil of others as those who make it their business to judge themselves. As we judge ourselves, our tongues and our thoughts and our actions are brought more into the conformity of righteousness revealed in the Scriptures. There are none who make such sweet constructions and charitable interpretation of men and things as those who are best at most in judging themselves. Do you desire to see your brother or sister in a more loving light? Consider first the depth of your sin then, and the weakness of your character, and the frailty of the estate of your mind. And then, the beauty of Christ's love for you becomes more visible. The beauty of Christ in that other person becomes more beautiful, more visible, And you can indeed enjoy that sweet, loving fellowship with your brother or sister. And finally, remedy number 12. Above all, labor to be clothed with humility. Humility. Here is a difficult labor. We are all sinners. Pride is the taproot of all sin. Therefore, humility is contrary to the natural man. 1 Peter 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God (coughs) that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Humility. Humility. we would all do well to become more humble. This is a grace that we grow in. This is a virtue that we should pursue. There is wisdom, I believe, that Thomas Brooks, in his list of 12 remedies, concludes with, above all, labor to be clothed with humility. What, therefore, is the benefit of humility? Let's consider the effect of humility. Humility makes a man peaceable among other brethren, fruitful in well-doing, cheerful in suffering, and constant in holy walking. Humility fits us for the highest services we owe to Christ and yet will not let us neglect the lowest service to the lowest saint. Humility will make a man bless him who curses him and pray for those who persecute him. A humble heart is the habitation for God, a scholar for Christ, a companion of angels, a preserver of grace, and a fitter for glory. These are the benefits of humility that we have been given by our Puritan friend. Humility is the nurse of our graces, the preserver of our mercies, and the great promoter of holy duties. Humility can weep over other men's weaknesses and joy and rejoice in their graces. Humility will make a man quiet and contented in the lowest condition, and it will preserve a man from envy in other men's prosperous condition. Humility honors those who are strong in grace and puts two hands under those who are weak in grace. And lifts them up. Humility makes a man richer than other men, and it makes a man judge himself the poorest among men. Humility will make a man have high thoughts of others and low thoughts of himself. It will make a man see much glory and excellency in others and much baseness and sinfulness in himself. It will make a man see others rich and himself poor, others strong, himself weak, others wise, and himself foolish. Hang in there. Humility will make a man excellent at covering others' infirmities and at recording their gracious services, at delighting in their graces. It makes a man rejoice in every light which outshines his own, in every wind which blows others' good. Humility is better at believing than it is at questioning other men's happiness. And so Brooks concludes... The humble soul is like the violet, picture a flower, a violet, which grows low and hangs head downwards and hides itself with its own leaves. And were it not that the fragrant smell of its many virtues discovered him to the world, he would choose to live and die in his self-contented secrecy. The truly humble person is one who loves rightly and loves according to the word. But what is this love? Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, and it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, it endures all things. This is that life of loving humility. This is the kind of love that never fails. And as we walk in this kind of love, as we walk in true humility, we will find ourselves walking the road to glory. Feasting upon the graces of our Lord. And therefore, we will have no fear of finding ourselves on the road to cannibalism On that road that leads to biting and devouring one another so therefore let us take heed and labor to be clothed with humility for all the law is fulfilled in one word even this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself may it be so let's pray our father in heaven we are ever thankful for the grace that You impart to Your people. For where we would be apart, where would we be? Where would we be apart from Your amazing grace? O Lord, we ask that You would indeed be pleased to be merciful and kind to us and clothe us with the humility of Christ. Keep us secure and, and grow us in our inner man. Change our desires and motivations and the meditations of our hearts to be that which is pleasing in your sight. Make us to love our God and love one another with the love of Christ and increase our love for those who stand in need of the powerful, transforming grace of our Lord through the gospel. And this is our prayer. And so we ask this and we pray this trustingly and in faith in Jesus' holy name. Amen.